true crime reporter goes inside the case files of the Texas Rangers. I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs with decorated former federal prosecutor Bill Johnston. You can follow the trail of the Rangers' epic stories and get bonus episodes by joining our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. From one of the world's most legendary crime-fighting agencies, this is an exclusive edition of True Crime Reporter, Texas Ranger Files. Be advised that this podcast is for a mature audience. Some episodes may contain profanity and graphic descriptions of violent crimes. In this inaugural episode of True Crime Reporter, Texas Ranger Files, Bill Johnston and I interview one of the most famous of the modern-day Texas Rangers, retired Ranger Captain Bob Prince. Captain Bob Prince and his son Randy are the only father and son in the history of the law enforcement organization to serve concurrently as Ranger Captains. The Texas Rangers constitute the oldest state law enforcement organization in North America dating to 1823. You can read more about the history of the Texas Rangers and see vintage photographs on our blog at truecrimereporter.com. Our story begins with the rescue of 13-year-old Amy McNeil from five kidnappers in mid-January of 1985. It captures the frontier spirit and courage of the officers who wear the distinctive five-star badge of the Texas Rangers. The teenage daughter of Don McNeil, a pioneer in the development of the first handheld calculator, was snatched at gunpoint on the way to school. Kidnappers ran a Jeep driven by her 17-year-old brother off the road and put a sawed-off shotgun to his face as they grabbed his sister. They demanded a $100,000 ransom for the seventh grader's safe return, but had no intention of releasing the teenage girl alive. Throughout McNeil's abduction, the five kidnappers snorted and ejected drugs and talked about driving to Hawaii with the ransom money. The teen defiantly insisted that her captors feed a hungry dog in their backyard before she would cooperate. Their ringleader, 34-year-old James Wesley Foote, lived near the McNeil's mansion, and his son was her school classmate, but unknown to her. Foote's son had once stabbed a fellow student in the arm with a knife. Two weeks before McNeil's abduction, Foote, who was wanted for attempted murder, had burst into the home of a prominent businessman in Arlington near Fort Worth to kidnap his two young children. The family's housekeeper wrestled Foote's gun away from him and fought him in a bloody 45-minute struggle. The gun discharged near her head and Foote fled. A few weeks later, Foote and his accomplices then abducted 13-year-old Amy McNeil. Retired Ranger Captain Bob Prince remembers a tension-filled 48-hour, 600-mile game of cat and mouse and a 100-mile-per-hour running gun battle. Captain Prince, when you look back over your long career, is there a case that you always think about that really stands out for you? Well, there's several, but one of them probably, um, I think all the officers that were involved call it a highlight of our career. Uh, we had a young lady named, well, a 13-year-old 
girl named Amy McNeil that was uh, kidnapped in Johnson County out of Alvarado. Uh, one February, mor February morning in um, 1985, uh, her brother, who was old enough to drive, was driving her to school. And it was an extremely cold morning, and, and uh, four gunmen, a masked gunman, forced him off the road into a bar ditch and ran up and and uh, hit the brother with a barrel of a sawed-off shotgun in, in the head, and not knocked him out, but just punched him with it. And... Uh, took the keys and then grabbed Amy and, and uh, kidnapped her and left the brother there. Uh, they kidnapped her and carried her into uh, Arlington to a house. And then she, uh, they called her dad. Her dad was a wealthy businessman. Called her dad and told that we have Amy and we need you to get together a large sum of money. I, I don't recall the amount. I think it's a hundred thousand, but uh, dollars. And we'll call you back. This was on Thursday morning. The reason I remember that is because the Company F Rangers had just gathered for a uh, company meeting. We had all our Rangers there. I was a Ranger Sergeant. Bob Mitchell was the captain of the company. And that's a company out of Waco, Texas. Yes. And, uh, of course, Johnson County is in company F territory. And, and when the sheriff got the call, our captain dismissed the group and sent all the company of Rangers to, uh, up to Alvarado and is a waiting game when we got there and, and, um, we got a polarity trap, uh, on the on the dad's phone. Which what does that mean? Polarity trap is not near as sophisticated as today our phone traps are. All the polarity trap would do was, uh, if you don't hang up the call, the phone company could identify where the call came from if it was a local call. So that occurred. They didn't hang up. And polarity trap could only identify that it was coming from Arlington, Texas, but they couldn't identify where it was since it was a different town. So what had happened, they had carried Amy to that house, which was one of the, one of the suspects houses. From there, they held her and didn't abuse her, but they, they held her until Saturday. Now this was Thursday morning until Saturday. And, and, uh, and then on Saturday, they called the dad and told him to have the money together and go to a payphone in Mesquite, Texas. And when they got to the payphone uh, at a given time, well, the call came in and I was the closest one to him because we had a transmitter on the dad to where we could record the conversation. The caller instructed the dad to go to a payphone in Tyler, Texas. Wow, this is a long ways. Gave us a certain time to get there. Uh, of course, we were in unmarked cars, and then we had two aircraft, FBI aircraft and DPS aircraft that were overhead. And we had <clears throat> had uh, 
took a drill and drilled a hole in the tail out of the uh, dad's car because it's heavy, heavy traffic, and we didn't want to lose the car. I uh, want to be able to, uh, uh, and, and this was after dark. We didn't want to lose a car from the aircraft looking down, and then us, the our cars, and uh, even though it's a real small hole, it, it was uh, emitted a bright light, so we could we could track his his limousine. And when we got to uh, Tyler, the call came in at the appointed time. And then instructed us to go, to, or instructed the dad to go to a location on Interstate 30 outside of Texarkana to the uh, west of Texarkana, which this is on another Arkansas border. Yeah, another 60, <laughs> 70, 80 miles from Tyler now. Well, I don't recall the times, but I do know that from the time we got to call in Tyler, it'd take almost an airplane to get to that phone in. Uh, uh, over toward uh, Texarkana, uh, we drove as as fast as we could, and but didn't get there at the appointed time to take the call. And after we got there, uh, we had uh, it's, like I told you before, it's an extremely cold night, and uh, two Rangers uh, would rustle up a couple of sleeping bags, got out and got behind a, the service station where the meeting was supposed to take place. But the call had already come in, and, we'd, and we're late. Uh, of course, our Ranger cars was okay with the speed, but the limousine that Dad was driving uh, blew an engine. And uh, it's it was still drivable, but when he stopped there at, that, uh, at the meeting place, which was a service station, uh, which was closed, but all of the uh, lights had been shot out, and so we we felt very certain this was the actual meeting place. So we got in our hidden places in our vehicles and aircraft. Uh, you couldn't even hear it; it was up so high. But uh, we waited for some like about two hours, maybe just an hour. And another phone call came in, and the dad answered, and uh, the people were very upset. Uh, uh, Wesley Foote was the caller. He, he was the, the ringleader. And he cussed the dad out for not being there on time, and, and the dad told him, I have the money. I'll meet you anywhere and uh, uh, to give you the money. Just, just come, bring me and my daughter. Well, we waited another couple of hours, three hours, and didn't show up. So we're up to around four o'clock in on Sunday morning now. And so Captain Mitchell called and told everyone to, to where to meet. We were going to go behind the service station a few miles away and regroup and decide what to do next, which. Obviously, we were going to go back to the house and wait for calls there because the calls didn't come in. While we were going there, we had a van that was going to come by and pick up the two rangers that were in the, in the bedrooms. And they called uh, either Brantley or 
Brantley Foster. Brantley Foster and uh, I'll call the other rangers. Howard Dunham. No, no, it, it, it was, uh, um, I'll call his name. That's uh, <clears throat> around. It looked like it's going to be the suspect's car. And so wanted everybody to back off until see what they did. Well, after a while, they left. And so our undercover van waited and then picked up uh, the two rangers. And, uh, and then we had one car still out on the interstate. It was uh, Jimmy Ray and um, Joe Wiley were still out on the interstate. And so they slowed down and waited till the car passed them, not knowing it for sure is going to be the suspect car. And they got the license number and called it in, and it was a stolen vehicle. And they obviously got a little too close to the suspect's car, and so they put Amy in the back package tray, 13-year-old girl, and then they leaned out uh, both windows and started shooting. Uh, one of them had a sawed-off shotgun and uh, uh, with buckshot, but he had sawed it off enough where it didn't have the velocity it would have had he not sawed it. Jimmy Ray was driving the car, and the uh, one of the uh, uh, shots, buckshots, would have hit him right in the face. It hit the windshield, but it didn't break the windshield because it lost velocity plus it's a ways off. And the person in the drive shooting out the other side of the car shot numerous times and uh, and hit the uh, transmission line. And when could, the could the Rangers tell that the that girl. the girl was in that back window area, right. they could see it. Right. Thank goodness the, they could uh, see her. Yes, uh, Jim Ray and and Joe White. I think Joe was one doing the communication. Uh, uh, had. Uh, had stated that they have the girl in the back package tray. And uh, so anyway, they dropped back. But when they did, their car caught on fire. And they ran a a construction area. We had a very narrow lane with with barricades on both sides. And so they were staying with him and cars burning. And if they had stopped, it had completely blocked any other pursuit coming. And, uh, but they continued driving, even though it was burning. And, and there's not many things that were very humorous that night, but, uh, Joe Wiley called the captain, uh, gave his radio number, I believe it was 682 to 66. We received gunfire and our car was on fire. Well, our, our, Men, a lot of the men were in personal cars, and they had uh, just walk-talk radios where they have uh, uh, communication. And at that time, we couldn't charge the walkie-talkies in the cars; it had to be in a uh, in a house charger. And so, Captain Mitchell's walkie-talkie was pretty weak, and he re- replied back. Are you receiving gunfire? Ten four. We're receiving gunfire, and our car is on fire. He called again. 
are you receiving gunshots? You receiving gunfire? Ten four. We're receiving gunfire and our car's on fire. You hear this real crackly radio thing. Repeat. Are you receiving gunshots? Joe Wiley answered and said, 10-4, we're receiving gunfire, our car's on fire, but we'd welcome a second opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and But they were able to, to continue driving until just past where the uh, construction ended and pull off and didn't block the road. And then they, of course, got out and the car melted and burning. And thankfully, someone was now in tail of them, right? Right, right. Where they, some other cars were back behind and uh, in pursuit, but no one would re- return fire knowing that Amy's in the back window. And uh, But the the kidnappers are like a whole lot of thieves. They don't think things through. They didn't realize that the car that's stolen didn't have a lot of gas in it. So they made their, after they realized that, they made the next ex- exit on a rural road and there were the intentions going to a first house and then uh, get some more hostages and steal another car. Well, all of our folks were right behind him, and uh, when they stopped well, and jumped out with their guns, well, gunfire started, and some of our guys uh, or all our group started shooting. and. Uh, Two other guys were hit, uh, Wesley Foote, and I don't recall the other's name, but there was four of them involved, three males and one female. And two of them, were, one of them was shot in the foot, one of them was shot in the elbow. Uh, and, and because they were in under cars and whatever, and so they had to skip some shots in to get them in the foot and get them in the elbow. But, uh, uh, Howard Alfred and uh, John Dendy, both Rangers, ran up on each side of the car and rescued Amy out of there while the gun battle was going on. And uh, uh, so they got her out. She was unharmed. None of her good guys were hit. Just the two uh, kidnappers were hit. A uh, little side note, when that... Uh, uh, I, I was handcuffing them. We had them laid on the ground, handcuffed them, and <clears throat> carried them over to the uh, edge of the road, waiting on ambulance to get there. And the FBI agent walked up with his pad and said, "What's your name?" He said, "Foot." And I'd been up three nights and wasn't as patient as I normally be, and I said, "No, don't care where you're shot." We know where you shot. What is your name? Foot. Well, I wasn't professional and talked to him again about, we know where you shot. What is your name? Foot. Well, his name was Wesley Foot. And um, so we got all of them captured and uh, Amy rescued and the, the highlight of the Ethan or other day, or the career, was when the dad got there and uh, was united with Amy. Uh, probably they wasn't a dry in the house. Uh, uh, everyone was so happy that 
everyone was safe. And uh, later on, um, the brother became a highway patrolman. Brother of the little kidnapped girl. Kidnapped girl. And then her husband was a highway patrolman also. Uh, they they came back to a ranger reunion a few years ago and was able to um, honor them and thank the, the guys. So how did they know so much about the family and when the little girl would go to school? or was some sort of inside connection. Yes, there was. Uh, a relative of Wesley Foote was in a class with Amy and was, uh, uh, that's where they got their information. As a result of all this, <clears throat> The kidnappers talk pretty freely in front of Amy. And uh, Wesley Foote told the guys, uh, you know, we can't let her live because she can recognize all of us. And so we're, one of you going to have to kill her. And the, the dad, uh, when he pays the money. And one of the other guys spoke up and said, well, I'll do that. I don't mind killing her. And... Very recently, uh, well, let me back up. Wesley Foote has been turned down for parole. This this happened 36 years ago. He got turned down last year for parole. The suspect, and I apologize for not being able to call his name, the one that volunteered to kill him, <clears throat> was being considered for release. And... Uh, there's a couple of us that were involved uh, appealed to the parole board not to release him because they tentatively approved him. And so we told the board about he's one of them that shot the ranger car and would have killed the ranger had the uh, uh, projectile broke through the windshield. And he's one that also volunteered to um, kill the uh, victim as well as the dad and uh, uh, Wesley Foote had also threatened to come back and kill the uh, sheriff when he's released from penitentiary well they approved the alleged one, going to be gunman uh, for parole and uh, I was very angry until I I talked with the Amy's brother very recently and found out why he was released he was is terminally ill and uh, uh, not expected to live a very short time and uh, invalid The news media cooperated with the Rangers and did not reveal the kidnapping until Amy McNeil had been saved. In February of 1985, Texas Governor Mark White signed a resolution passed by the House and Senate lawmakers that commended seven officers who thwarted the kidnapping, Texas Rangers Howard Allred, John Dendy, James Ray, Johnny Walter, and Joe Wiley. Johnson County Sheriff Eddie Boggs and his Lieutenant D.J. Mulder. Rangers James Ray and Joe Wiley had continued the chase with their car on fire. Ranger Dendy had dashed to the kidnapper's stalled car in a hail of gunfire, scooped up the girl, and tossed her to Howard Slick Allred, who drove her to safety. 
Humble as rangers tend to be, they decline to be described as heroes. A month after the commendations, Foote went on trial for aggravated kidnapping. He vowed that he would never go to prison. A jury took less than 20 minutes to find Foote and one accomplice guilty. During a recess in the trial, Foote kicked the sheriff and struggled with deputies. Four months later, the 34-year-old Foote was returned from state prison back to the Johnson County Jail for questioning and a robbery. The shotgun used in the kidnapping of Amy McNeil had been stolen from a man who was beaten the day before she was abducted. But Foote escaped from the Johnson County Jail's recreation yard by climbing a 10-foot chain-link fence topped with barbed wire strands. He was aided by another inmate and a jailer resigned. Don McNeil offered a $2,000 reward for information leading to the capture of his daughter's convicted kidnapper. McNeil, with a chrome 9mm Colt pistol tucked in his blue jeans, told a reporter, I want the man caught. An informant tipped off law officers for the cash reward. Foote was captured without a fight, 150 miles away in a small town where his parents lived after being on the run for a week. His mother told reporters, if he had come here, I would have fed him, and then I would have called the police because I don't want my son on the run. He did that kidnapping, and he's got to pay for it. His sister claimed Foote escaped because he was being mistreated and because police were trying to tie him to other killings. People don't know the good side of James. He used to go to church, and he was almost a preacher. He's a good person. He's a good guy. He just got on drugs, she said. Seven months later, James Wesley Foote was sentenced to life for four attempted capital murder charges for his gun battle during the kidnapping with the Texas Rangers, sheriff deputies, and FBI agents. As of this broadcast in November of 2021, Foote is 71 years old and still behind bars in a maximum security prison in Texas. He was denied parole in May of 2021. Captain, the uh, Texas Rangers are one of the most legendary law enforcement organizations in the world. What is it that separates them from the rest that makes them so different? Well, I don't know that I can objectively answer that <clears throat> because I'm, uh, I've been involved with the Rangers. Uh, I was active Ranger for 19 years, and uh, then I've been a, uh, what's called a special Ranger uh, which were still commissioned after you, if you honorably retire. And so I've been in, involved with the Rangers for a number of years, and uh, they have a very intense selection process. You have to have eight years' law enforcement experience before you can even apply. And the applicants, nearly every applicant comes from inside DPS. That's the Texas Department of Public Safety. State right. police in Texas. For right. Those, um, not uh, state troopers, yes. highway yeah. patrol, this sort of thing, or <clears throat> DPS narcotics. Or, uh, but uh, they have passed legislation in the past few years where you just have to have eight years' experience, but the last four must be in DPS. And so you could be a 
commission officer in New York, uh, wouldn't matter how many years, as long as at least four, but you'd still need to have four years in, uh, in Texas DPS. And nearly all were highway patrolmen historically. And there's something about, of course, Texas is the size of Texas and the high, the job of the highway patrol on lonely, often by yourself on roads where there's not help for 30 minutes or, or maybe an hour away that I think it, this is, I'm just adding to what I'm hearing from you. It does something either does something or not to a, to a person's character to have to be able to be by yourself on a highway in the middle of nowhere. You could say, for instance, between Pecos, Texas and El Paso, Texas, there's interstate highway and your next grocery store might be 150 miles one direction at some point. But having nearly all come from the highway patrol, uh, it weeds out toughness. I know toughness is just part of many facets of a ranger, but it'll find the faint of heart and they might slide to the side and not become a ranger. But the, it seems also just the, uh, and not everyone's perfect and not everyone's perfect ranger, I'm sure, but as a general rule, the, the curiosity and intellect that I've seen in the homicide cases, how do they screen for that when they're interviewing or they're applying? Well, one of the things that, uh, well, let me back up. We have, uh, at least a hundred apply for every one position. One of the things we look for is people can work without supervision. We always go to their prosecutor that they have dealt with, see what kind of witness they make on court. And we take quite a few of their investigative reports and review them. And uh, we talk to other officers about how do how does he relate? Does he work with other officers, or is he a loner? Or uh, but mainly, can you work without supervision? Because in the, in the Rangers, uh, I was a supervisor for several years, but you may have a Ranger that'll be stationed a hundred to hundred twenty five miles away from in their supervisor and we expect uh, rangers to give you a day's work for a day's pay and uh, you know and a lot of that's weeded out before they come in and then uh, i don't want to pat myself on the back of this because i'm not talking about myself I'm, but the rangers i see today are probably the most elite bunch of guys and girls that i've ever been around I've had several DAs since I've retired talk about their local rangers and how good witnesses they are. Said they're always come prepared and they very precise and, and make great witnesses. You don't really teach that. That that has to be someone that, um, of course, you you do give them a lot of instructions, a lot of training, but still. You have to have that uh, that inner self in order to be that type of character that we're looking for. And we're very fortunate because we have so many people trying to get in the Rangers, you can be very selective of, of who you actually pick. Geographically, for people not from Texas or even someone new to Texas, uh, 
you know, southeast Texas, let's say around Beaumont, uh, which is east of Houston, Beaumont, Texas is closer to the east coast of Florida than it is to El Paso. And, and, and uh, northeast Tex- Texarkana, Texas is closer to Chicago than it is to El Paso. The size of Texas is so hard to understand for people that uh, have not been in Texas. And so you have so few rangers. When, uh, during a big case I worked with you all, you had 93 at that time. And so you ha- is it correct you have six company areas, A, company A through F, and then they may handle, uh, for instance, the ranger headquarters in Dallas. It's not a huge geographic area. It's pretty big. But the area, let's say, out of Lubbock, Texas, has a big span of space as the one in, out of El Paso, Texas. And so that's where you're saying you may have a ranger station 150 miles from his supervisor. Uh, you told a story a minute ago, and I didn't, I've known Joe Wiley as long as I've known you, and I did not know Joe's, uh, doesn't mind a second opinion that his car is on fire and he's taking, <laughs> taking gunfire. But the, you know, where do you find people like that is part of the question. Um, driving a car and they knew that ultimately, that the solving of the case, the saving of the girl depended on them taking a chance of getting burned up and killed. And they didn't think twice about it. You had a ranger, a couple of rangers at a company F that rescued a little girl and one of them was killed down near Horseshoe Bay. And over and over, we could tell them and we may get to. That courage, not hero courage, but true deep courage where you don't think twice about doing the right thing, even if you can may very likely get killed. How do you sense that or find that in an applicant? I don't know that you do find in an applicant, uh, but I'd say the majority of rangers I've worked with, I sense it in them. So the going above and beyond the, the call of, of duty, is it just when the, the rangers come in, you know the history and you know the expectation? And that explains the courage. I don't know how to explain uh, courage. I, I just you either have it or you don't. And um, professional almond have it. Uh, not ev- not every officer had. I wish it did, but uh, the professional ones do, and uh, they do what's necessary, uh, knowing there's lots of risk involved. But they do what's necessary to save a life or to uh, complete the investigation. What was it that attracted you to the Rangers? I wish I had a good answer for that. It's just a burning desire I had. Uh, I was a school teacher. I uh, went to college. and Now, you didn't just go to college. You were an excellent football player for Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas. Well, my coach would probably disagree with that description. <laughs> you, but, uh, you play with some good players as well. Bob Lilly and others, but at any rate, you had options of what to do and you decided to teach school. I did and uh, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it, but I was a history teacher and I had a burning desire to become a Texas Ranger. The more I studied it, I realized what a very difficult chore it was to become a Texas Ranger because so many try and so many fail. Uh, when you have hundreds take the test every year for one or two positions, uh, I knew how slim it was. 
but I had enough confidence in myself to try it. I do want you to do one thing because we have an audience that's around the world. Describe for them the ranger, how they look. They all the proper white, proper uh, the apparel, the dress. white white cowboy hat. For somebody who's never seen one, tell us about them. Well, I, <clears throat> um, maybe later time we can get some pictures of them. But normally the rangers uh, uh, dress in western style clothes, conservative western. Uh, all the hats would be either uh, light gray or or some color akin to that. Uh, they all wear a uh, open firearm, normally with a gun belt. Uh, they wear a ranger badge pinned to the left left breast, uh, and uh, uh, normally, if you're out in the field working, you might not. But normally, wearing a tie and a white shirt. And the badge is modeled after. The badges are are made out of a single peso. Mexican $5 coin. Yeah. And the captain badges are made out of 50 peso. And the uh, belt that I've had a couple of don't have one now, also known as a ranger belt or ranger rig, which has the smaller buckle piece. You know how that originated? It's a very secure rig. It is. It's been around a long time, and I know that's the name of them now. When you order one, you order a ranger style. But the... uh, the the badge you, you show there that's a, a captain's badge, but they all look alike except the captain rank and above uh, is made out of gold, and the the ranger and uh, even through lieutenant is single peso with silver. And those are those are out of circulation, I think now coins, but they, you can find them. But they have that have that ridge around them, and they're a heavy, thick silver, mostly silver, and they make a good. Stamp impression. I can't remember the exact years, but there's only a limited number of years that they use, and and that's from the mold that they use to make them uh, cut the badges out of. But uh, there's only a limited number of years, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the exact years. So what should a criminal think when they see a ranger coming? Well, they're going to know that I... that... uh, He's a, a credible, honest lawman that uh, is going to do the job. Thank you so much for your service. We appreciate you having on True Crime Reporter, and we want to have you back. Be glad to come back. Thank, Thank you, you a lot. Thank you, Brent. Thank you. In our next episode of Texas Ranger Files, you will hear about a Texas Ranger who was involved in the rescue that you just heard about give up his life to protect a two-year-old girl from her kidnapper. It's the never-before-told story of the day the last Texas Ranger died. We want to be your favorite true crime podcast, so please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.